So um, I'll be talking about delusion, and uh, that'll be the first half of the talk. And then um, Shelley will uh, continue with um, uh, the transformation to equanimity. So um, I'll begin with um, um, something that happened to me, you know, many years ago. You know, I went for this um, eight-mile hike. And, um, you know, it was like a loop up a mountain and, you know, coming back was just this little loop. And, you know, I was really enjoying the walk, the beauty and the warmth of the sun, you know, feeling my steps on the earth. But about halfway up, I realized that I had a blister and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I was so lost in the discomfort Instead of my mind, you know, gently whispering, step, step, it whispered, can't wait until I get to the car. Can't wait until I get to the car. And um, over and over again, it was just kind of doing that. And I, I wasn't particularly aware of it. So I finally got to the car an hour later and breathed a sigh of relief. You know, it was a really hot day, high noon. You know, I turned on the car and lo and behold, the air conditioner didn't work. You know, so um, I drove 30 minutes home and my mind whispered, I'm waiting until I get home. Can't wait until I get home. And um, so I finally got home, opened the door, took off my shoes, breathed a sigh of relief. And it was nice and cool. And I was hungry and ready for a good lunch. And guess what? You know what happened? I opened the fridge and my leftovers I was depending on were gone. And um, and I was really hungry. And I dragged myself back into the car, you know, and it was like, can't wait to eat, can't wait to eat. And in each, in each instance, I kept believing that when I finally got what I wanted, then I'd be happy, then I'd be okay. Um, and this is how delusion works. Um, it's been said that um, delusion is the most dangerous of the three defilements because it's the hardest to recognize. It's one of the qualities of delusion is believing it's true. In that moment, when I was couldn't wait to get to the car, uh, I was really believing everything will be okay as long as I get to the car. Um, on one meditation retreat, um, the teachers told us to pay really close attention to the effects of greed, hatred, and delusion on our minds. You know, and as I practiced, you know, over the days, you know, it was seemed easy enough uh, to recognize desire. I found myself wanting to open the window, the one that had like a big sign under it that said managers only. And, uh, you know, I just kept going back to, well, maybe I should do it anyways, you know, and over and over, my mind kept reaching for that. I was easily, very easily able to notice aversion. Uh, pretty frequently. Uh, in particular, the person who sat right in front of me, they kept moving the cushion back so they were almost in my lap. You know, and I was so annoyed during the walking period, I'd push the cushion back. Next period, she'd be all the way back on almost on my lap again. You know, I started having these very uh, non generous um, uh, feelings towards her. Um, I was able to explore that the annoyance and I watched it fade and was able to relax into it. Um, 
was the the interesting twist to that story is at the end of the retreat she came up to me and she was this very sweet sweet woman that had been hating you know and um and she said to me i hope it was okay what i did the person in front of me was so reeked of garlic it was so strong i could i just couldn't tolerate it so i kept getting away from her uh so um so it was interesting um but so you know as it's as it's very easy to see um both desire and aversion were very noticeable once i started looking but i just couldn't put my finger on delusion i mean how do you see delusion arise when the nature of illusion is that it's not seen you know that's a primary quality of delusion it believes it's true you know, I, I, you know, I just wondered if it was even useful to consider it. It seemed that, anyway, just by paying attention to desire and aversion, I definitely had my hands full. Um, you know, and as I kept watching my mind, I noticed, you know, that desire and aversion were hardwired. You know, life tends to lean towards what helps it survive and away from danger. Um. So I thought to myself, if, if desire and aversion are part of what make life possible, um, <clears throat> maybe delusion is also essential. And um, so I practiced instead of making um, aversion and desire wrong, you know, I began to respect those powerful forces in our lives and to befriend them and understand them. And it called on me to begin to appreciate the delusion that helps me survive and keeps me from being free. Um, <clears throat> for instance, um, not believing the real possibility that we might die today allows us to plan for the future, to go to college, get a skill, get a mortgage, have children. But any of us could die today. The illusion that we're smarter or better than others can give us confidence when we're afraid. Denial can help us feel safe and not panic. It can save our lives. When I was a teenager, I believed, um, you know, I was involved in a spiritual group and they had some interesting beliefs. And so I believed that imagining a white light around me would keep me safe. All I had to do, my mind was so powerful. As long as I imagined this white light, I was safe. And, you know, I hitchhiked alone from city to city, you know, with a white light around me, you know, and see, so I was safe, you know. And, um, and I ended up in the middle of a riot once. And um, this white light idea allowed me to stay calm in a situation where if I panicked, I would have been hurt. So the denial of, of the possibility that something would happen to me was actually really, uh, really helped me at the time. Sometimes the illusion that we're weak and incapable keeps us out of harm's way by avoiding difficult, harmful situations. But none of those delusions are optimal strategies for responding to the world around us. They may have helped us survive, but they're not an optimal way to, to do so. 
I, you know, I like to think of this kind of delusion not as an enemy, but maybe more like training wheels on a bicycle. You know, eventually we learn to balance without them. But it can be scary and awkward at first. You know, when you've got a superiority complex, you know, you walk into a room and you feel like you own it, you know, and you begin to drop that. All of a sudden, these, your insecurities can show up. So it can be scary. It can be awkward. One way that the mind works is that we often see what we expect to see. When we expect people to be friendly, we tend to find friendliness. When we expect them to be mean or judgmental, it's easy to find that. We believe that people are not trustworthy. We look for the ways that they're not. If we dislike someone, we tend to notice their negative qualities. So we see what we expect to see. Often and all the time. Um, this is a study they did a long time ago. Uh, they gave, uh, they had two groups of people. Uh, one, they gave them uh, pain pills. You know, I forget what the uh, pain issue was, uh, but um, they all had, you know, constant pain. And they gave one group pills that were, they were told cost 10 cents. And the other group, they were told they were like $3 each. They're the same pill. It had nothing in them. They were all placebos. Nobody had any medication. The people who took the expensive ones significantly found them much more effective. And none had any active ingredients. And that's how placebos work. That's how delusion works. And we do this kind of thing about many of the things we believe. The delusion, you see my disappearing cup? Whoops, where'd we go? Um, Delusion can be defined as a belief that's persistently held despite evidence it's not true. With practice, um, you know, we eventually come to discover that what we accept as reality is actually based on widely held misperceptions. Um, Having a distorted view of, of what's real begins with misperceiving something. We might misperceive the information coming in, such as, um, you know, if you've ever mistaken a distant rock for a person. uh, And once you get closer, we might see the mistake. Um, We once mistook, um, I forget what what was the, it was a gas station used to have this big orb, you know, and um, we were convinced it was the moon. You know, we're going towards it. Oh, look at the moon. It looks so beautiful. It's so, and then we got close and it was the gas station orb, you know. And um, so uh, we misperceived the information. Uh, An example uh, that happened, you know, and you see this in society a lot, um, but there were some pictures taken on Mars 
um, and the rocks did look like a person. And soon, lots of places on the internet was uh, saying there was a government conspiracy that they didn't want us to know that there were actually living beings living on Mars. Um, and once we believe it's true, we think about it, we elaborate it, support it until it becomes a strong, fixed view. For instance, with the Mars rocks, I imagine uh, you might think something like, Mary said it was real, and she's a scientist. You know, the government covered up UFOs all these years. They must be covering up now. And we might be so convinced that no evidence will shake our belief. And um, even among wise teachers, you know, delusion can persist. Um, a very... Uh, there was a very wise Tibetan monk, you know, he'd recently, you know, not too long ago come to the U.S. And he was asked to be on a panel, discussion of panel um, with a group of scientists studying the mind. Um, and, you know, this monk, you know, he was, you know, he'd been educated in a monastery, you know, and he based his worldview on what he understood to be the Buddhist words and his belief that everything the Buddha said had to be true because he thought the Buddha was omniscient. And he mentioned that, you know, that the view that the earth was flat. And, and, you know, one of the scientists very kindly corrected him and explained scientifically why the earth was not flat. The monk, who was quite open-minded, was easily convinced of his error. You know, that says a lot about his practice, right? And then he said, Oh, yes, I see you're right. But at the time of the Buddha, the earth was flat. So, unshakable beliefs. Mm. Buddha's practice ultimately addresses much subtler delusions about the nature of existence. We believe if we just get what we want and avoid what we don't want, then we'll be happy. And that by chasing what we want and rejecting what we don't want, that that's a good strategy for happiness. It's not that we don't, we intellectually don't know better. But when we're caught in the delusion, in that moment of being caught in it, the delusion takes hold. And since we can't get what we want all the time, or most of the time, it leads us to a state of being perpetually unsatisfied, which is part of the Buddhist teachings, right? That um, everything is essentially unsatisfactory. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Nothing can be fulfilling forever. Um, nothing uh, is permanent and um, and nothing that we identify as ourselves is is still there. You know, it changes. The two-year-old we were is no longer here. You know, we're totally different now. So everything that we we think of as self is not self. Um, You know, I'm still me without my pinky. You know, I'm still... Um, so there, there isn't a, um, you know, it's this core delusion that we have a solid self. This is me, a core delusion that, um, that there's something permanent 
a core delusion that somehow we can get satisfaction in the world, in the things of the world. Um, And the teachings speak of basic distortions of view. And so basically we tend to think that what's impermanent is permanent. Again, as I said, even though intellectually, if we really think about it, we do know better. For instance, you know, you know, love is forever. You, you know, we, we make vows and I love you forever and ever, you know, till death to us part. And then there's a divorce, right? It doesn't last forever for, you know, for a lot of people or, um, or even more, you know, that our health will last. We tend to think that uh, we can be healthy. We can stay vital forever. We resist aging and sickness and death and loss. And then we feel betrayed when they occur. We tend to think that things that can't satisfy us will satisfy us. All the different things we might be want, we might want, you know, that we'll find satisfaction with our relationships, with just having the right experiences, the right job, the right profession, the right house. We even use doom scrolling. Um, I think I don't know if you all know what doom scrolling is. It's this endless looking at the same same bad news over and over and on the you know on the your device. You know we think of that as, as somehow it's going to satisfy us. We just kind of keep doing it, right? It's going to satisfy something. It sure doesn't make us happy. And as I said, we tend to think what's empty of self to be self. You know, how many of you have identified with how our bodies look, even how our hair looks, um, our success, our families, our status? Someone um, I know, um, you know, he tragically committed suicide after losing a really large sum of money in the stock market. Now, he still had, he wasn't broke. He still had money, enough money left for his family. Um, But he was so ashamed of losing his status in society, he couldn't face being seen as a failure. He was so identified with his image of self uh, that he chose to end his life because of that. These distortions are the foundation of our conditioning. This is where we base our opinions or assumptions. And in the practice, it's through the stillness of practice, of through awareness, we can actually learn to see through them as distortions of reality. They're not true. That's not, that's not how life is. You know, most of the time we tend to live our lives pretty automatically. Uh, I think if you've driven at all, you've probably experienced driving on the freeway for 20 minutes and suddenly realizing you hadn't paid attention at all. You know, oh my God, how did I get here? You know, I was thinking about something else completely different. The mind was in cruise control as well as the car. You know, we do this with our senses much of the time. We use our memories of 
past experience to provide the data. We just fill in our experience with, you know, oh, yeah, I'm going to eat an orange mindlessly and think about something else. Yeah, I know how an orange tastes. I've eaten one before. But it's just automatic we do that. Mindfulness allows us to de-automate, to slow down and not be automatic, to create enough space around our experience to see it clearly and make choices consciously. And every time we fully arrive in the present, every time we fully arrive, even if we're confused, we're practicing letting go of delusion just by showing up and seeing what's here. Maybe we've been meditating and we're lost in remembering the past and suddenly we just remember where we are. Oh, I'm sitting on the cushion. You know, we broke the delusion. And in practice, watching the rising and passing away of everything that comes up in my mind, I really began to understand that we don't see delusion arise. But we learn to see clearly, we can see through our delusions. And we call that insight. And that's the heart of this practice, this insight practice. To see through our delusions by really showing up right in the middle of them. Being mindful is looking at things newly. It's what we call beginner's mind not based on our data from the past. As Suzuki Roshi said, um, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. And so I'll, I'll end with that and, and pass it on to Shelley. Thank you all. Thanks, Inez. Thanks very much. It was really lovely. So, equanimity. I'm going to talk about equanimity, which is where um, delusion can uh, transform to this beautiful, beautiful state. It's Equanimity is considered, it's one of the most highly regarded states in the Buddhist view of life. Sometimes it's compared to Awakening is like almost being awake, having deep, deep equanimity. In its fullest, most developed form, <clears throat> it's this sublime, uh, peaceful balance of mind, which is able to look on everything that is occurring in life, look at it clearly, without being shaken, without being pushed off balance. But long before it reaches that really exalted kind of state. Um, it's a hugely beneficial quality of mind to develop. And um, on the way to that, that complete equanimity, we gradually cultivate patience and stability of mind, clear seeing, acceptance of what is, this ability to remain balanced in the face of what life sends our way. And we never know what that's going to be. Often there's a, a simile used for um, equanimity uh, that is of a, a person uh, on a high tower overlooking uh, a countryside. So seeing everything that's rising, but with a 
a wide open view, peaceful, not entangled. And uh, that's a, a lovely state to aspire to. So, you know, what is it that's shared between delusion and equanimity? You know, I sp- spoke about uh, some things, but uh, I was, I wanted to point to a particular quality that I think is really, uh, is in the middle of both uh, often. And that is a kind of acceptance, a non-contention with, with, with something. With, uh, in delusion, what looks like acceptance is really, is a result of not seeing clearly or being in denial, unconsciously refusing to see what's true. So there's an acceptance of our deluded thinking. There's an acceptance of some false idea of what's going on. Or there can be just an acceptance that's based on not seeing it all. But in equanimity, the opposite is the case. We see very clearly understanding the deep truth of how things truly are, what Inez pointed to. The truths of impermanence, of not self, of uh, of dukkha too. I have a sense that um, acceptance is really it's inherent in deeply knowing these things. It's 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 right in there. It's Ajahn Sumedho. You know, he's a he's the the most senior American monk in the Thai forest tradition, and he has this um, this really concise little teaching that he often says he often uses it's like this it's just it's like this and whenever i hear that that it's like this i can hear both the knowing and the acceptance in it there's equanimity right in it and wisdom too and it's i and it's important i think to to note that by acceptance i don't mean approval Approval isn't uh, isn't part of it. It's just it doesn't mean we don't act if there's action called for. It doesn't mean we have to like what's happening, but we're no longer resisting the fact that it's actually happening, whatever it is. And of course, in order to uh, to really accept what's what's really true and to be in balance in the middle of it, we need to be able to see it. And that, that points to the difficulty inherent in working with delusion. And Inez pointed to this as well. The way it clouds our ability to see makes it really challenging to actually recognize when we're under its spell. We believe what we're seeing, but watching for the signs of it, I think can, uh, can be helpful in, uh, in meditation. If we're having trouble staying connected to our meditation object if we're spacing out that's a good sign that we might be in delusion territory or if we're confused about how to practice or whether to practice same same idea if we find making a, de- a decision really confusing or and distressing again there might be delusion operating if we keep doing the same thing over and over again, even though it isn't working and somehow holding on, believing it's it's going to work, like Inez was talking about with the hike she went on, where if I get there, it'll be okay. And if I do this, it'll be okay. And then it isn't. That's a sign there's delusion working. So when these, these, these kinds of uh, confused or vague or resistant mindsets, when they visit us, the way forward is training the mind 
in, in mindfulness, training the mind to be more focused, to really attend to the details that are arising in us that delusion tends to gloss over, to ignore, to be blind to. So we bring more energy into our practice, into our awareness, more precision to our mindfulness. And often in the, in the texts, um, the specific guidance that's, that's offered is an encouragement, um, to practice mindfulness of breathing, maybe with mental noting, because having a, a kind of a single object, having a single object of meditation, like the breath that can help focus the attention. And for some of us, um, noting, can keep us more closely connected to the meditation object, more connected to our moment-to-moment experience. So ways of collecting the, the attention and bringing energy to it. Counting breaths can also be helpful in this regard. Uh, counting each out-breath up to 10 and then counting back down to one. That's one way that that, that is done. That's uh, practicing with counting. And if you get to 11 when you're counting up, you realize, oh, well, better start again. And gradually, strength of attention grows, focus grows. Delusion has that, you know, it has that quality of mental slipperiness. Attention can sometimes slide off uh, whatever our object is when we're meditating before we really notice it. And that quality of vagueness, of, of imprecision. So bringing energy into the practice mentally or physically can really, really counteract those tendencies. And uh, for some people, this breath meditation that is often recommended isn't, uh, doesn't really work because it's too calming to the, to the whole system. So then we need to look for other ways of uh, developing energy and focus in the mind. And those can include uh, doing standing or walking meditation or even practicing yoga or another movement practice, which requires our attention to be, uh, be noting what's going on in the, in, in many different areas of the body. And it also brings more oxygen in, waking the brain up. Both focus and energy can grow. Close attention to, uh, to all the sensations at the sense doors. And that's another way of bringing in energy and also strengthening attention and, and mindfulness. A, a, a practice that I sometimes do when, uh, when there's a kind of, there isn't enough energy in the mind is to do walking meditation. And then as I walk, I move, um, attention from seeing to hearing to smelling to the sense of the body in motion taking like four or six steps with each sense door, just seeing, 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 and then moving, hearing, 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 hearing. Each one in turn, keeping the attention with each one in turn, sometimes using noting, but uh, maybe just staying connected to each sense door. Different practices are are beneficial for different people, but I find using my whole body along with my mind can really bring energy and focus. And then I can return to my anchor if I want. And we need to experiment to find which practice is uh, most conducive to, you know, evoking energy and, and sharpening our attention, each of us. 
inner equanimity has it has discernment within it it has wisdom in it the the etymology of the poly word the poly word that we use for equanimity usually is upeka and it's uh it's it's the etymology is discerning rightly or viewing justly so cultivating clarity of attention it supports moving in this direction Another way um, delusion shows up is this rigidity about what we believe, you know, holding on to beliefs, even when the facts show us we're mistaken, like flatters, <laughs> a flatters example, developing the same focus and clarity that helps with a vagueness of mind can help with this kind of mental rigidity. Um, and Inez mentioned that tendency to misperceive to the big orange uh, the big orange ball. I have some stories about that same kind of misperception. And it, and it's amazing how they can persist even after we've seen the big orange ball. Maybe the next time we see it, we still think, oh, there's the moon. There's the moon. Even though intellectually, we know it's not the moon. There are so many ways that we fool ourselves and then we hold on to our belief, often unconsciously, we think. And sometimes delusion can be um, an unconscious strategy of the mind to avoid, to really avoid seeing what's difficult or challenging in our lives. We talk about denial, you know, in Western psychology, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the way the mind can refuse to engage with difficult situations. It pretends that they don't exist or that they aren't really a problem. And moving into denial or into a vague, you know, perhaps pleasant dreaminess in in our meditation practice, that can be a way of of keeping awareness of what's really going on internally hidden, you know. And it, it might look like we're accepting our situation, accepting what's going on when actually we're refusing to see it. So we train the attention to be more focused, developing the patience and the persistence to stay connected, to stay with our present moment experience. <clears throat> and then uh, once we overcome the vagueness and resistance that, that characterize um, delusion, its flavor of acceptance, it has the potential then to transform into true equanimity. And we speak about equanimity in uh, in Buddhism generally in two ways, and there, there are two different words for it. It. The first is that that quality of seeing and ex- and accepting what is so upeka that really kind of wide open um, quality of equanimity that sees from a distance sort of. Um, and I think when things are going well, this is really it's not usually so difficult. But when the situation in our life is painful or challenging, it's not so it's not so easy to truly accept it. We can often know intellectually that something is true, but it can be tempting to claim that we've really accepted it when we know intellectually that something's true. But often we are resisting internally the truth of things that we accept intellectually. Like, you know, everything changes all the time and, you know, everyone dies. You know, we know those to be true, but I think. For many of us, when we really look deep, deep inside, we're likely to see there is those that de- delusion of permanence that uh, 
that Inez spoke about. We spend our lives trying to out-finesse impermanence, trying to find ways of making it false. (laughs) And until resistance to the truth ends, we aren't going to find the peace of equanimity. There won't be equanimity. I'm really firmly convinced that all the major dukkha in my life comes as a result of trying to find a way around the truth of impermanence to somehow make it not apply to me, to try to control reality. We can't be balanced in the face of a truth that we don't really accept. We can't. It's not possible, really. So Upeka is this balanced overview, an acceptance based on seeing rightly, seeing clearly into the truth of things. And the second variation of equanimity is a state of mind that allows us to remain balanced and steady right in the middle of whatever storm is occurring now. And uh, the word for that in Pali is Tatra Majatata. Tatra Majatata, I love that word. (laughs) It literally means standing in the middle of all this. If you've ever spent time, uh, you know, on a boat in the ocean, you know that in order to keep your balance, you have to develop sea legs. The ability to just adjust your posture to sway a little as the as the waves make the the boat rise and fall, and this kind of equanimity is kind of, it's like mental and emotional sea legs, the ability to respond to ups and downs in the moment without being thrown off balance, swaying with the wind and waves, being flexible, and of course there's a a logical relationship between these two expressions of equanimity. If we're truly seeing what is, sincerely accepting that it is so, that's what gives us the ability to stand steady, to find our balance. Without acceptance, without that real acknowledging of what is true, we're going to find it very difficult, if not impossible, to be balanced in the midst of what we call the eight worldly winds, you know, loss and gain, praise and blame, pain and pleasure, fame and ill repute, those four pairs. Those winds are blowing all the time in our lives. And we don't want to live our lives depending on our well-being, depending for our well-being on having just the pleasant winds blow, only having calm seas to move through life on it just it's not going to work you know it's not going to happen it's not going to work sometimes we confuse accepting the truth that there is suffering with acquiescing to it so we might think that if we accept the truth of something going on inside us some difficult um state that's going on inside us or something that's happening to our friends, some painful thing that's happening to someone we love or in the world, that if we accept the truth of it, we won't be moved to address it or to try to help change what needs changing. But that's that's really not the case, I don't think. Accepting the truth gives us a place to stand, a place to stand steady. There's a um, an analogy that I've heard uh, Gil Fransdahl um, use several times, talking about the difference in the way uh, parents and grandparents um, respond to a child's playground injury. So 
you know, the child falls and she scrapes her knee and she's crying and feeling a lot of pain. And new parents might just jump in and be worried and fearful and motivated by that worry and fear, try to help the child. But a wise grandmother is more likely to just smile and tell the child, it's going to be okay, don't worry, and, you know, maybe kiss it to make it better. There's love, but without the reactivity. There's equanimity there. The ability to act is there. And in this uh, Theravadan tradition, there's a, a formal practice of equanimity that we do. Some of you have probably done it. It's one of the one of the Brahma Viharas, the beautiful forms of caring that we cultivate, loving kindness and compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. And one way of practicing involves repeating phrases that recognize that things are as they are. Things are as they are, that they have arisen due to prior causes and conditions. And then often that acknowledgement comes along with the recognition that we might wish them to be otherwise, but they simply aren't. We don't stop caring about what's difficult, about suffering, but we accept reality. This is what's happening now. Things are as they are. We care about it, but we can't control it. I think uh, many of us are are probably familiar with the the patterns of the stages of of grief that are uh, described by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She described them some 50 years ago. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And, And what I see in this sequence is a movement through various kind of flavors of delusion that finally resolves in an acceptance that comes from seeing clearly. I think when we're grieving a loss, as we go through those, and we might not go through all of them or in that particular order, we eventually recognize that denial, anger, bargaining, and depression are not really helping us to come to a place of peace. Peace can't come until we come to acceptance. Only then is there the ability to move on. If we've lost someone, you know, we don't stop loving and missing them, but we give up trying to make it true that the person is still alive. We give up being angry that the person is gone, trying to figure out a way to undo reality and overwhelmed by, you know, this need to make things different. Things are as they are. There's a lot of suffering in the world, of course, you know. There's the now, right now, there's all this violent devastation going on in in Eastern Europe. And there's angry political and social division in this country and many other countries. There's the climate crisis causing so much suffering for so many beings on Earth, many species, including us. And there are the individual forms of suffering that uh, many beings are experiencing now and all of us experience at some point in our lives. If we want to develop equanimity with these areas of life, our first step, of course, is to come to accept their reality. With acceptance, upeka can arise, discerning rightly, seeing justly, 
We continue to care, but we know that everything happens due to prior causes and conditions, and this is how they are right now. And when we've come to acceptance, we cultivate that other other flavor of equanimity, learning to become steady in the winds, in the waves, tatra majatata, standing in the middle of all this. And with that balance, you know, we can stand up to the worldly winds. We don't stop caring about things, hoping that they'll change or acting to create change. But at present, this is how things are. So developing that that overview that Upeka implies, cultivating clear mindfulness, the wisdom of seeing what's true, that's the first thing. And then in order to develop the ability to stand steady while all these worldly winds are blowing around us, we need to cultivate patience and determination, confidence, a sense of stability. All these things are part of the, the paramis these beautiful states of mind that support our growth in all of the path and their foundations for equanimity. And gradually, as we practice sincerely, both of those flavors of equanimity can grow. An image that uh, came to me when thinking about all three of these, uh, these pairs, uh, is that of the the frog that turns into a prince in a in a German fairy tale? Um, there's this beautiful princess who has a golden ball, and she drops it into a well. And this frog tells her that he will return it to her if she agrees to be his friend. And she's not very happy about that because she has a little bit of aversion for getting close to a frog. But she agrees, and eventually, over time, as she gets to know him better, she lets him sleep on her pillow, and lo and behold, he turns into a handsome prince, being a fairy tale. The frog was under an evil spell, and her acceptance of him broke that spell. And the parallel that I see in this fairy tale is that in order for the ugly thing, you know, the greed, the aversion, the delusion, to become its beautiful counterpart. Faith or confidence, wisdom, equanimity. The person looking at it, seeing it clearly, has to let go of her preconceptions and meet it with curiosity, has to get to know it very well. We don't get rid of any of these by hating them. That's diluted, and it just adds more aversion. We have to come to understand their operation in us. We have to question them. We have to recognize what they're trying to do for us, you know, in their unskillful way. All of them have these ways they're trying to help us survive, you know, trying to keep us safe, keep us happy, trying to protect us. We might say that they are each, you know, something beautiful, but under a spell. And our practice has the power to break that spell. So that's what I have to say about equanimity. (laughs) And thank you very much for your attention. And uh, remember, there's a a Q&A with uh, Inez and at 6.15 uh, this evening instead of a drop-in group. There'll be a 
Q&A. It'll be in this room, the meditation hall here, not in the drop-in room. So look forward to seeing you then. Until then, may you have acceptance and balance in the face of whatever arises.